Good morning, church. I got a real easy one today, right? Conflict. Oh, boy, who wants to preach on conflict? Actually, I, I do. That's actually the truth. I actually do like preaching on things like this. Uh, anything, anything that lines up with my background in counseling, like that's my lane, I like it, I enjoy it. Doesn't mean I love conflict, doesn't mean I do it perfectly, but I really do love to bring what the Bible says to us, especially when it's in an area that I, that I feel per, uh, more equipped to deal with. And conflict is definitely one of those things. Um, how many of you guys feel like you kind, of, uh, you kind of have a handle on how to deal with conflict in your lives? There's a whole lot of no confidence in your response. And you know what? That's, that's actually a really fair and I believe an honest response. Uh, because conflict is tough. Um, we're, we're in the love one another part of, of the reset. And, and we... I think we, we really go out of our way in our lives to avoid conflict or to do it really poorly. Have you noticed that? We tend to do it really, really poorly. Oftentimes we post on social media before we're willing to have a conversation. We talk with the wrong people about the right people and instead of having the conversation with the right people. I think most of us can look back at our lives and if we're really honest in, our, in these life reflection moments, how many of you guys have those moments where you just get quiet and you just ask God to, to speak to you about how you're doing? And, and, and just know like in those moments, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'll do that and I get this sense of condemnation and I'm like, is that what God thinks of me? Well, here, here's what we know. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So when you ask him for an honest take on you and you hear condemnation, he's not the one that answered you. But when you ask him and you, you sense moments that you could have done better in and you feel called up instead of just called out, those are clearly moments that he is speaking to you. And, and, and all of us have regrets about how we've done relationships in the past or past relationships, don't we? We all do, and that could be because we were hurt by someone who did something to us. And after that happened, it really, it didn't matter in your mind and your heart and your experience what they said or did. You just couldn't get back to a place of reconciliation or trust. And that could be because you have woundings, and it could be because they didn't deserve that. Not everybody who breaks your trust deserves um, to be trusted again. It would be foolish to say otherwise. It also could be uh, that we messed up a good thing and we lost uh, a lifetime friend for the rest of our lives. I can definitely think back to times that I've screwed that up with friends. One in particular was in grade school. And I, this might not sound like a big deal, but I just remember this so well. I, I remember it. It's seventh grade, and I had plans with one of my good friends for the weekend. And then I had other friends come up to me, ones that were more on the in crowd, and they asked me if I wanted to hang out that weekend, and I said yes. I said yes to those friends, even though I had plans with my friend who was so faithful. And I remember telling him, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to hang out with you this weekend. And he said, yeah, but you already said yes. I said, oh, sorry, something, something else came up. And when he found out that I actually made plans with the, the kids that were more on the in crowd, I'll never forget how he responded to me. He didn't, he didn't shame me. He didn't, um, he didn't yell at me. It was way worse. He said, uh, you made your choice um, and you weren't honest with me. 
and I, I don't want to be your friend anymore. To this day, I, I, I feel the pain of that relationship that was broken. I said no to the wrong person. I wasn't honest in my interaction with my friend. So maybe you messed up a good thing. Uh, the truth is, most likely, your relationship is somewhere between those extremes, right? Your experience with relationships is that your relationships are still there, but there are relationships that you have that they're not quite in the place that you would like them to be. How many of you have a relationship? Uh, it could be with a parent, a grandparent. It could be with your significant other. It could be with someone at work. It could be with someone at school. But you just have this, this sense that, man, this, this can't be all that this relationship is meant to be. Does anybody have a relationship like that? Like, it just feels like there should be more. There should be more here. The truth is, I, to me, there, there can't be any more, uh, any, any, more, any greater proof that, that there is an intelligent designer than the fact that God actually creates us to have relationships and they actually happen. Because I know deep down, um, my, my default when I'm, I, I've talked about this before, when I'm hungry, angry, lonely, or tired is not to do relationship. My, my, my default is to do things that make me happy about me. It's, it's that toddler mentality, that 18-month-old toddler mentality. I get that when I'm hungry. I get it when I'm angry. I get it when I feel lonely or when I feel tired. And, and look out. My default is just going to be selfish. That's just my default. I don't like it. I'm not proud of it. But the fact that God calls us to relationship when we all tend to have those tendencies is kind of humorous, isn't it? God is creative, um, clearly ambitious uh, regarding humans because that's not our default to have relationships. And to me, I think he has a great sense of humor. We're going to continue our series as we get at the basics of relationships. And today, we're, like we've already shared, we're going to talk about conflict. Um, we're going to talk about uh, conflict in our relationships and how we're supposed to handle those in our community in our church community. We're going to talk about a few different expressions, potential expressions of conflict in our community. Um, but that doesn't change. Even though we're going to talk about conflict, we always have to keep a biblical frame around it. That no matter what the relationship is, no matter what the conflict is, we always have to wrap it in love. Okay? We always have to wrap it in love. It doesn't mean that, that we're excusing people's bad behavior. Love doesn't mean that we're saying, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it, it wasn't a big deal. Actually, no. It, it's just saying that we're always going to try to do relationships, even in conflict, even when it's the hardest. It's easy to love people who love you back, and it's really not easy to love people who are not acting loving towards you. But God does not let us off the hook in how we carry ourselves and how we portray ourselves. So he calls us to love even in the midst of conflict. We're called to do conflict in a way that is kind and gentle and good even when the way through is painful. Uh, Paul's words to the church um, at Rome, Romans 12:10, it says, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves. In Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, Paul said something similar. He said, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. It's like, wait, but God, what about, nope, in your relationships with one another, but what about, nope, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, 
did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, yes, he was God in the flesh on earth, and he didn't use that as a way to lord it over us. He didn't walk around telling everyone how great he was. He actually, he, he made himself low, and he made himself humble. And he didn't, he didn't talk about all of his accomplishments and all that he was. He didn't walk around saying, guys, I'm God. I am awesome. You need to bow down right now. I mean, I think a lot of us would have a hard time not doing that. <laughs> we, we have an honest one in the front row. Thank you, Jasmine. I appreciate that. It says, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. There are different, uh, there are different relational dynamics at play in our relationships, uh, but the lens that we're called to look through all of these relationships is one of love. Romans 12, 18 speaks to this. It says, if it is possible... As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If at all possible. In other words, guys, exhaust all of your love tank to be at peace with the people around you. And, and do it like Jesus. Do it with a, a, a reference of Jesus. That, that remember, he was perfect and he entered into a sinful world. And he did not use his perfection uh, as a way to hold it over all of us who are sinful. So if we think that we have a hard time dealing with sinful people and we're not perfect, imagine how hard it was for the one who is perfect to come here and not just hammer us into the ground. Think about that. That had to have been unbelievably difficult. So the way that we do relationships should look different than the, than the kind of slash and burn tactics that we use and we see in this world. Our conflicts at home should look different. Our conflicts with our neighbors should look different. Our, our conflicts in our schools should look different. Our conflicts with our bosses should look different. Our conflicts with the leaders in our church community should look different. So today, we're going to start, we're going to look at three kinds of relationships that, that you could experience in this church, and we're going to talk about how the Bible would direct us to engage in conflict in those contexts. But, but first, guys, let's just pray. Let's, let's just ask the Lord for open hearts today, because anytime we, anytime we speak, anytime we deal with subjects like this, our first tendency is to say, nope. I'm going to get rigid, and I'm going, to, I'm going to protect myself because I want to do it my way. So let's surrender today. Father, as we talk about conflict, I know, I know for me, I, sometimes I think that I know how to do it right. I think I know how to do it better than you do. But I know the reality is I don't. Otherwise, my relationships would be, would be perfect. And they're not. So, Lord, I, I pray for your spirit to come into this place today in a powerful way and show us how to do conflict in a way that honors you and honors your word and honors each person in this place. Help us to have your attitude. Give us that, God. We can't do it without you. We invite you into this place and we pray that you would have your way here even though we, we desperately want to assert ourselves, God, speak to us today. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first kind of conflict that we're going to talk about today is it's probably the most common kind of conflict that we have in churches, and it's one-on-one interpersonal conflict. The first kind of conflict, it's the most common kind that we have, one-on-one interpersonal conflict. You know what this is like. So, so you've been offended by someone um, that has said something to you in our community. And, um, and you, you kind of, there's part of you, if you're not really a, a conflict-oriented type person, you, you kind of want to run away and never talk to that person again. Anybody ever feel that way about someone here? No one's willing to be honest? I have. I've wanted to run away. I don't always want to talk to people. I don't always want to do it right. This is the most common kind. Someone says something to you. you, You're offended by it. You want to run away. But you're also really, really good at practicing telling them off in your mirror at home. Because they say something to you and you don't really say much back or you say something that you look back at and you're like, that didn't even, that wasn't English. I didn't even respond with, with real words. And, and then you get home and you're like, well, you know what? If you ever say something like that to me again, you're, and you're just like, you, you just have all this defiance and you're like, yeah, that's what I would have said. And, and you might, uh, maybe you've seen your spouse do this. Brandy's, Brandy's done this before. I've done this before. We've all done this about someone in our lives, Right? We're really good at practicing th- this idea of conflict and not really good at engaging in it. One-on-one interpersonal conflict. If you've been a Christian for a while, there's a good chance that you've heard of Matthew chapter 18. How many of you guys know Matthew chapter 18? Anybody? Come on, guys. Matthew 18. Uh, may- maybe you haven't been a Christian for a while. That's okay. I'm glad you're here. But, but in some ways in the church, it's, it's become as close to synonymous with conflict resolution as possible. It's almost like, I mean, I've heard this used in so many contexts. It's like, but did you do Matthew 18? <laughs> it's like, wow, I don't think that's the intention that God had when he did Matthew 18 for people to be like, um, but I don't think you conflicted properly. Jesus often came against the religious people who tried to put heavy burdens on others and sometimes Matthew 18 is used well, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's used well to resolve interpersonal conflict, and other times it's used poorly to, to make people feel worse about themselves instead of dealing with the actual issue. But Matthew 18, here's the thing. It is about conflict resolution, but it's not a one-size-fits-all model. It's not. And we're going to get to that a little bit later, but it's very much for a specific kind of conflict that exists in interpersonal conflict. So let's get into the passage and we're going to talk about how, how all that applies. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. It says, if your brother or sister sins, and it's, you know, parenthetically, it sins against you. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Um, Guys, I'll I'll break this to you. Pagans and tax collectors were not looked at well by people of this time. 
So the first thing that, that's really important to notice in this passage, first thing that's really important to understand for context is that this is not a one-size-fits-all passage for conflict resolution. This only has to do with sin that's between two individuals. And it's also really important to know that this model is only going to apply to certain kinds of sin. It's not going to be the kind for every kind of sin. So let's talk about that a little bit. It's a pretty popularly held belief in most churches that this passage means that if John Doe churchgoer sins against me, that then I'm, I should go to him, and if he repents, I want him back to the light. And if he doesn't, then I need to bring a couple of my friends who are really going to have my back. It's, that's what we do, right? We always bring people that are going to have our back. They have our back, and we bring them to, uh, to John Doe churchgoer to put a little extra pressure on him. And if he repents, then great. And if not, I need to then take the whole matter in front of the church. And if he doesn't repent then, then he's out of the church. And then the church is supposed to hope and pray that he'll repent. And that, that is true. That is true. Church discipline is never to permanently remove someone with the hopes that they will burn in hell. Church discipline is to remove someone so that you can pray that they come to true repentance and be restored into relationship. That's what church discipline is about. But what is this passage? Is that really what it's all about? So context is super important. The context here is a small group of Christians in the first century. The, the context is people who know each other very, very well. We talk about doing life together in our community, and our community really does that pretty well, but maybe not as well as they did in the first century. Because we have a high participation in community groups, but I'll tell you what, the, the context here is knowing each other deeply and well and being together really, really often in a culture that was very hostile to, to them. So they wanted to stick together very closely. So they did life together. It was close families, and it was, it was church that became family. And we, we talk about our church being family, but it wasn't family like this. This was even closer on a very, very regular basis. And what makes it even more intimate is the part about bringing friends with you to help you deal with the sin of the other person. Because in our mind, we think, okay, so I, I went to John, uh, John Doe, churchgoer, and, and he didn't listen to me. So I'm going to bring Mark and Steve with me, and then we're going to go, and we're going to have a talk with that person. That's not what this passage, passage suggests at all. Here's why. Unless Mark and Steve were eyewitnesses to what happened. Matthew 18 doesn't apply. Eyewitnesses. This is a very, very uh, small area of sin because the truth is people sin against us all the time and there aren't eyewitnesses, right? So you can't just bring, this is not about you just bringing a couple of your friends who you know will have your back no matter what's true. This is about people who witness the sin against you. So this is a very close-knit group of people who are doing things together on a regular basis. And there wasn't much freedom for someone to do something against you where there weren't witnesses. So this is specifically about eyewitnesses. So this is far from a one-size-fits-all. Verse 16 has a lot of clues in it. 
It says, but if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that, and then there's a quote. Always pay attention to that in Scripture. So that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Do you know what that's referring to? It's referring to Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. It's the Old Testament, and it was talking about how to handle conflict. And and, and that verse, it says this, one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So here's the truth about this passage. A matter cannot be established if there weren't witnesses to witness. So this is not about bringing a couple of your friends that have your back. This isn't for just any kind of conflict in the church. It's about a very specific, intimate kind of conflict that it would have been obvious to multiple people what happened. So, but even though this is not about every kind of conflict in the church, it's about a very narrow kind of conflict, there are some conflicts that occur in this context. And can you imagine how much better the church would be if we practiced this? If you saw someone do something wrong, if you witnessed it and they said, hey, will you? I went to John Doe churchgoer and, and he didn't listen to me, but you saw what he did. Will you come with me to, to have a conversation with him? Can you imagine if we actually took the steps to do that, how much better just in this area of conflict our church would be? It's powerful stuff, and it's the way of Jesus. It's the way for us to reflect him better than we do now. But what about other types of relationships? What other types of conflict are there within our relationships? So we're going to move from conflict to crime. From conflict to crime, because crime happens also in the context of our relationships. So what do we do? Maybe you've, uh, maybe you've paid attention to the news. There, there have been a whole lot of very unfortunate incidences uh, of abuse of power happening within churches. It's very troubling. There was an incident at Liberty University just this month where one of the professors, one of the professors was accused of, of indecency because he, he was filming minors in various states of undress and they, they caught him. A professor at a Christian university got caught doing this. So that's kind of a big deal. So here's the question. Would Matthew 18 apply there? Nope, I see one person shaking their head. Would Matthew 18 apply here? I've heard people argue that it would. But can you imagine the additional trauma that would be inflicted on the little girl or the little boy who was told by their church or their their parents or their pastor that they had to go and confront a professor at Liberty University related to the crime that was committed against them. Well, it says it in the Bible. How many people have heard someone say that? How many people have had the Bible weaponized against them with bad theology? That's dangerous. That's dangerous. I, I, you know, here, here's, the, here's a spoiler. Matthew 18 is not for that. Matthew 18 is not for that. It's harmful and it goes against everything that I understand about Jesus when I think about the wrong application of Matthew 18. So how do we deal with conflict that becomes criminal? That's funny, the Bible talks about that too. Romans 13 verses 1 through 7, it deals with the subject. 
Paul says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free and free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants. Another translation is God's ministers. We've talked often about our family. All of us are ministers. So there are ministers in law enforcement. They are God's ministers, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. Not not a fan of this part. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. I've heard people say, we, not here, <laughs> just be really clear. I've heard people in churches, and I've seen posts about how churches should never involve law enforcement because that makes Jesus look bad. It's like, whoa, wait a second. I thought sin made Jesus look bad. Right? Romans 13 tells us differently. That's actually specifically about people who do wrong to the criminal level. They're called to account. I appreciate this thought um, by the man who's the head of an organization called Grace. And it's, uh, it, the organization's called Godly Response to Abuse in Christian Environments. And he says, suggesting that abuse is simply a conflict in the church to be addressed in-house by implementing Matthew 18 could make you an accessory to a crime. Wow, that's, that's scary. And it's appropriate. We need to pay attention to that. So God set up government to act as ministers of justice. Now, now we could all make arguments about government, right? We could say, well, not, what about that guy? What about that lady? We, you could say that about pastors. You could say that about any people. No one is perfect, but God has instituted the structures. And he's put people in place to deal with these issues. He set up government And the church should always comply with the criminal justice process with an eye toward restoration with hearts of love. The church should always do that. The church should never resist that process. I would argue that that makes Jesus look bad. Restoration often comes with pain-filled consequences, doesn't it? 1 Corinthians chapter 5 Um, verses 9 through 11, it speaks to how the church should deal with issues that are are really big in-house. Like, so we have the governing authorities, but what should the church do with people that are dealing with uh, crime? It's it's like big sinful issues. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 speaks to that. Paul said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not all people, not, not, not all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. Amen. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister. Ah, 
So the claim of Christianity is where that, that's, the, that's the line of demarcation. Ah, so if someone claims to be a Christian but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slander, a drunkard or swindler, what does it say? It says, do not even eat with such people. I'm going to ask the band to come back to the stage. Here's our last point today, and, and there's so many things we could talk about in this subject, and I'm certainly not covering every single uh, relational um, subject uh, on conflict that we could talk about, but I'm really just trying to hit some of the really important ones that I see. And here's the last kind of relational conflict that we'll talk about today. What do you do in the church when there's a conflict with a leader? Not that that could ever happen in our church community. Of course it does. It happens in every church community. But what do you do when there's an issue with someone that is a leader? This can feel a lot more daunting because of the position that, that a leader has in the church, a pastor or elder. And, and there, there's a power differential, and we recognize that. So Matthew 18 wouldn't apply here either. Why do I say that confidently? Because with confidence, I, I can refer to the pastoral letters. And that establishes the order of the church and how we're supposed to deal with things in the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul wrote to Timothy instructions on how to handle conflict with someone who is a leader in the church. And it's very balanced. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19, 19 through 21, it says, Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. You know what this means? It means that God takes it seriously that leaders should not be falsely accused. And he also takes it equally serious that leaders who have done wrong are dealt with before the church. This is a big deal. This is why it says, I charge you in sight of God not to show partiality. Why? Because it's really tempting it's really tempting for, for leaders not to deal with things that are wrong in leadership. And it's also really tempting for people to see something and make an accusation that's false. Bo both of those things are true. And Paul tells Timothy, don't do that. Don't be partial. Don't be self-protective. If there's something wrong in leadership, address it. And it's, he, he's speaking to the other leaders. He's saying, listen, you have to deal with this openly and honestly because if you don't, then other people will start to do things that, that are out of bounds as well. And in the sight of God, we are called not to do that. So we don't falsely accuse and we don't let people get away with something because of a charisma or a talent. Both are wrong. Neither scenario pleases the Lord. Guys, again, we recognize that relationships are complicated. And these three scenarios do not in any way, the, the, this is not an exhaustive sermon on how to deal with conflict. But I think these are 
three very common things that show us that, that conflict is messy and it's hard, but when we do it right, we look more like Jesus. Can you imagine how much more of a witness we would be to the world if we practiced doing these things? If we dealt with one-on-one interpersonal conflict, one-on-one first. If we, if we dealt with crime, if we dealt with conflict that rose to the level of, of criminal behavior, if we just said, we're an open book and we will, we're going to follow whatever, whatever, wherever the law goes here, we're there. We have nothing to hide. And can you imagine how beautiful it would be if we handled the power differential that exists between people in the church and leaders in a way that honors God like Paul told Timothy? be a beautiful thing. Jesus never shied away from conflict, but he also, also never shied away from boundaries. And he always did it with love. The Bible tells us that it's God's desire that all of us would come to a saving knowledge of him. It's a beautiful thing about the heart of Jesus. He wants all of us in his kingdom with him. But he also sets a very firm boundary. He doesn't say just anyone can come in and they can just sort of make their own way. Nope. John 14, 6, Jesus says he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. And very pointedly, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. There's a very specific way for it. For some of us, it's offensive to think that, that Jesus had to die to pay for our sins. And that could be for a bunch of reasons. Like, hey, I don't want anyone doing something for me because anytime people have done stuff for me in my past, it always comes back on me. They want something from me. They've abused their authority. Well, I just want to tell you this. I'm sorry for anyone who's abused their proper authority in your life for their gain. But God won't do that. He'll never do that. He humbled himself to to die on a cross for your sins. So I just want to, I just want to implore you. Don't attempt to pay for your own sins. Don't do it. You cannot stand under the weight of the penalty of your own sins. Maybe you've been trying to do that for a while. You cannot do it. Don't keep trying. You don't have to do it. All you have to do today is agree with Jesus and his way. Acts 2, 38 and 39, it tells us how to do that. We always want to make sure that you are aware of how to be made right with God before you leave here because all we have is today. There's one way. He's the way and it's this. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And here's the beautiful thing. It also says in there, this promise is for you and your children and all who are far off. Notice, everyone's included in that. Everyone. All you have to do is be humble enough to to say, God, I've tried enough to do it on my own. I can't do it right. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. I need your spirit to guide me for the rest of my life. That's all you have to do. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off. 
Father, I give thanks that we're a part of a community that can have hard conversations. Lord, I give thanks that we're a community that that values what you have to say. Father, I pray that every word from you would fall on each person here individually in a way that makes sense to them. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would have your way in us. If there's anything in us that is not pleasing to you, I pray that you would show us. God, if there's any relationship that we're not doing right, I pray that you would show us. And as much as it's up to us, help us to live at peace with all people. Lord, guide us. And most of all, Lord, help us to love one another because you loved us first. 